0: Welcome to the Retail Exchange Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Retail Exchange Podcast with me, Carl McKeever. For this episode, we're in London to bring you highlights from Retail Week Live 2023. As the retail industry's best and brightest gathered in the UK capital for the two-day event, we were present to pick our way through some of the challenges and conversations that are on everyone's lips in retail right now from the continuing cost-of-living crisis to digital transformation and adapting processes that reflect important issues around both people and the planet, we sat down with industry leaders and innovators who are leading retail's push for brave new thinking in a world and industry that never stops changing. All that to come on this special event review episode from the Retail Exchange podcast. Here's the episode. It has been a bumpy ride for retailers recently, not least because of ongoing economic pressures. There are question marks over just how high inflation will rise and how this will impact profitability. I spoke with Richard Lim, CEO at Retail Economics, to get an informed view on the economic crisis facing the UK and what it means for the industry. Potentially a less than optimistic way to start day one, or was it? Just how ugly will the economic outlook get? Or is there a case for cautious optimism? So Richard, at an event like this, there's plenty of um, hot discussion and there's lots of things up for debate. But I guess the biggest question is really, in this period of change and turmoil and transformation for brands, are we really going to see any winners?
1: There's always winners and losers. And so in many cases, it's about understanding consumer behavior, understanding shifts in behavior, understanding how that um, how that spans across different verticals of retail, different channels within retail, whether that's around the discounters or the luxury end of the market. So really understanding those behavioral trends, understanding what consumers are really desiring and making sure that businesses aligned to you know that new reality for consumers.
0: One of the things that people were saying about retail brands not so very long ago was that in an era where you just have to get on with something, do you think that's part of the problem is that so many people are trying to do a little bit of everything and they've actually just lost some focus?
1: I think that there are some brands that you can point to where they yeah where they have tried to do too much and they've spread themselves too thinly And not doubling down on what they are really their core competencies, and I think you've seen that across certain brands where it's it's led to them facing stiffer challenges than perhaps they would have otherwise. Because I
0: guess we're living in an era where kind of you have to reach out to every kind of consumer group, and perhaps this is part of the problem: is by not being clear about who your target is, Mm. or being super clear about what your proposition is all about and your sense of purpose. You know, you can risk almost trying to be something to everyone and actually nothing to your main group.
1: I think, I think that is a risk. I think we've seen retailers that have struggled because they have tried to do that. But I think actually, if you look at some of the winners over the last couple of years, then actually it's been the ones that have really understood their core target market. They've really managed the communication to reach out to their core customers. And actually, if anything, I think the lens has narrowed for the brands that have done this really well. And I'll just use M&S as an example of a retailer that maybe perhaps five years ago, you would have described it as a retailer that was trying to expand to different groups of the market, reach out to new customers with a different proposition that was outside of their core audience. And if you fast forward to where they are now, I think that they've done a really impressive job in transforming the business. And part of that is recognizing their core customers and creating proposition that is based around their core customers as well as some other really impressive stuff that they've done around their digital transformation programs around some of the partnerships that they've formed as well but but an example of where I think a retailer that a few years ago was casting its net way too wide and actually part of its transformation i think i believe is that they've um, that they've regained their focus on who their core customers are
0: within the last 12 months we've seen inflation really cause sort of pain points for some brands brands like john lewis for example have attributed their recent poor performance and saying that inflation has really hit their customers very hard how much more can inflation rise? The Bank of England, the Governor is anticipating that inflation is going to fall very sharply this year. Are you of the same view? And what's the ongoing impact for inflation to many of the retailers that we're talking about?
1: So I think there's there's two different aspects to this and I'll start with consumer inflation. Um, and we've seen inflation that's likely to have peaked at the end of 2022. We are going to go through a period of falling inflation, and that will fall sharply in my view. It's not going to be a straightforward, kind of linear uh, deceleration in inflation. There will be bumps along the way, but we're certainly on the trajectory of um, inflation that will fall sharply. I do think that the cost of living crisis has been impacted by interest rates and the growth of interest rates, and actually it's changed the narrative around the cost of living crisis. So previously the cost of living crisis was really one that was focused on the least affluent households. They spent a disproportionate amount of their money, on food, energy, transport, and the pain was really concentrated across those areas. But actually we've had 11 consecutive rises in interest rates. Interest rates resting at 4.25%, And there's about three and a half million households that will be impacted in terms of additional mortgage repayments. That's widening the impact of the cost of living prices. So I think throughout this year we'll still see really significant challenges in terms of the squeeze on discretionary spending. We have our own cost of living tracker where we measure the impact of inflation and wage growth and how that then translates to discretionary spending power. And actually we've seen improvements as inflation has fallen down, but also we've seen improvements because wage rises are so high. So around seven-ish percent at the moment. So So do you think we're still
0: going to see inflation cited in the results in the coming 12 months from brands Mm. around how that is causing issues for their customers in terms of their disposable income, the kind of things that they're buying?
1: I think I think we will continue to see a tough consumer environment that is being driven by a squeeze on disposable incomes that's, that's been generated by inflation. I think that the outlook is more positive than it was at the end of last year. But I think the other side of this is while we've spoken about a cost of living crisis for consumers it's been an operating cost crisis for retailers they've had to deal with rising input costs but also operating costs that have risen from labour costs from logistics from utilities and there's an intense squeeze on profitability and margins so my view is that a lot of retailers are actually in some ways able to disguise top-line growth, because it's coming through with inflation and passing through those costs, the real pressure over the next 12 months will be on profitability.
0: Richard, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. With consumer sentiment depressed by the cost-of-living crisis, retailers are looking at how to deliver a shopping experience that puts retail back on the customers' priority list. Over on the main stage, retail leaders from Nespresso and Pets at Home talked about the importance of creating in-person experiences that are genuinely making customers feel valued. After all, if it's not immersive or interactive, is it even worth your customers' time? We caught up with Nespresso UK and Republic of Ireland Head of Retail, Luke Howarth, as he came off stage to learn more. So from the panel session you've done here today at Retail Week Live 2023, what were some of the other interesting insights that you learned from your panel members? I
2: think a couple of key takeaways for me were certainly when you go down the immersive route, that it's uh, it's a marathon. There can be some tactical sprints that you can do to help roll some things out quicker, but fundamentally you need to uh, be in for the long haul, invest in the long haul. You need to take, a team's with you on the journey and that mindset
0: change is critical so shoot for the moon but recognize you might get to the north pole first i think that's fair yeah As a company, you seem to have spent and invested quite heavily in visual merchandising over the years. I think you have some of the most interesting window displays on the high street. Why do you put your money there when so many people really have started to pull away from displays? And it's either gone to a digital POS format or in some cases, you know, they've taken displays out altogether. You still seem pretty committed to this particular activity.
2: Yeah, we we do a blend, to be fair. We have um, some windows which are quite traditional. Uh, and they're impactful and we find that they do work. But we also balance that out with digital displays, which are obviously far more dynamic, uh, and can constantly change and tell more messages at once. And then as I've said earlier on, we've tried in the new concept to actually have no display and the, the boutique is the shop window itself. And that has actually proved to be quite successful. So I think moving forward, we'll do a blend of the boutique being the shop window and digital assets on, uh, on either side to help be able to tell different stories.
0: Yeah, because I guess you're still going to need to have those periodically campaign-driven agendas, which the shop window is obviously an ideal place for.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And that's where the digital pieces come in that can help promote that.
0: I guess one of the dilemmas that you must face as a brand is when customers are essentially already loyal and perhaps they have an online account where they get their pods delivered. Coming into a store, there must be that tension for store team members around, do we take the sale now, or is the customer encouraged to shop at home and and use the e-commerce vehicle?
2: Yeah, so the intent is always that when they come into a store, we service the customer's needs. So if they want to take coffee home there, great. But it's that future order that we can then help to move online or educate about the ability for them to be able to order it directly to the house. The intent of the stores isn't just necessarily now from a actually taking a product and in a till. What we want them to do is to take some further education about the brand and engagement so with the brand. So it's
0: experiential and it's one where they're, in a sense, educational in some ways, Absolutely. learning about the brand and, and why you do things differently.
2: And that is what we're finding creates a deeper relationship with our customers. If they less learn a new piece of sustainability or how to recycle, they then increase their engagement with us longer term
0: but in recent years there have been many more options for customers as more coffee pods have come onto the market. How have you responded to that?
2: It's about, I guess, making customers understand the value that we bring and the quality that we bring. And that's part of why physical stores are actually really important. We help to tell the customer all of the sustainability stories we do. I mean, we have some amazing sustainability stories. So it's about making the customer understand why they should
0: shop and consume an espresso. Luke Haworth from Nespresso, Head of Retail. Many thanks. Thank you. One of the retailers taking to the tech and discovery stage at Retail Week Live was Marks and Spencer. I caught up with the company's head of data science for retail, John Mildenhall, to find out how investment in AI is helping retailers like MS to manage change, navigate complexity, and unlock real customer value. So John, today you were speaking on stage about AI. Can you just give us an overview of your session?
3: Well, I think it was quite wide ranging really, and it was about the impact of AI on retail and what we should be focusing on, how we can make sure we get value out of automation efforts.
0: I think one of the things you managed to do, which is probably a breath of fresh air for everyone, is to get a definition about AI. Can you just tell us the way that that was described?
3: I think a lot of people think of uh, chatbots when they talk about AI and and potentially also kind of uh, generative image algorithms as well. But what I like to kind of talk about when we start throwing that term around of artificial intelligence, uh, scaled algorithmic solutions that make decisions that don't necessarily need human intervention. Thinking about it in that respect is probably kind of a more useful way of talking about it in the context of retail. So this is not purely about just predictive decision-making, this is much more. Well I think decision making is a very big part of it. It's about how can we make the right decisions to get the business to do the right thing at the right time with the right people and to ultimately generate value because that's what we're here for. We're trying to make the retail operation more efficient, more effective. We're trying to increase sales. We're trying to make those sales less costly to achieve.
0: A lot of these big tech projects are often criticised because they really sort of disappear down rabbit holes. Can you give us some very practical examples of how AI is being used to improve retailers' fortunes?
3: I guess there's two parts to that, which is the the rabbit hole bit and how do you avoid that rabbit hole? I I like to think we have a pretty strong governance process for how we run artificial intelligence, data science projects. Within Mark Suspense, we've got very much of a product viewpoint of that. So we're trying to build data products, so data science and data products. In terms of how we're, we're achieving that, we now have very large scale portfolio oriented squads that are able to deliver products that really provide value and that are working very closely with the business in order to make sure that we kind of keep that magic of what MS is, whilst also providing all the benefit of automation and all the algorithmic solutions that can make that easier to achieve in retail in a timely way and at scale because we have... 26 million unique customers a year. So we need to make sure we get that.
0: At an event like Retail Week Live 2023, there's clearly lots of interest by the brands which you're attending in developing their own AI strategies. What advice or some tips would you give to those brands who are just on their AI journey so that they can get it right first time if that's possible?
3: Yeah, I think that I mentioned in my panel session that you need a kind of portfolio approach. You need to make multiple bets. You can't just put all your eggs into one basket because there are lots of reasons why a particular AI project might not work out how you thought it would be. Um, And those aren't necessarily just technical reasons. They can be to do with the business. They can be to do with the customers. They can be to do with partners. So I would say you need a program which involves multiple projects and a lot of early stage discovery projects which might only last a couple of weeks. Just get a proof of concept. Can we do a minimum viable product? Um, The other thing I'd say is just don't get kind of hypnotized by the hype, right? Everyone's talking about ChatGPT this week, you know, a few weeks ago was something else. Quite often the biggest value is in quite prosaic and, and, you know, on the surface maybe boring things, but you need to be alive to those opportunities and be able to take them when they arise. So a certain amount of flexibility is required on top of this kind of curiosity that's going to uncover the opportunities that, that algorithms can deliver value for
0: how can ai really help retailers connect better with their customers both at a whole new level of understanding to improve efficiency and you know essentially that connectivity of the relationship
3: Yeah, I think that this comes down to personalization. So at the moment, we have a a number of personalization algorithms in production that are doing things like predicting what the best offers are for an individual customer or potentially recommending them products on a web page. So say if you're looking at a web page for shirts, it might recommend you this tie to go with that shirt. Those are algorithmic um, systems that are personalized to the individual. So they're they're calculating what you're most likely to buy next on the basis of what you bought in the past and what you looked at. Now, there seems to be a kind of opportunity in play to start using things like large language models to replace that functionality. So I could just literally say to a chat GPT or a DALI or, or, or similar, this person has bought a shirt and a tie, what should they buy next? And you'll get an answer. That's very nascent, that idea. But I think we're gonna see more and more with these large language models being used to connect internal systems to get, uh, to get useful and valuable answers, rather than perhaps more traditional approaches.
0: John Hall, Head of Data Science at Marks & Spencer. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. AI-driven cloud technology is also helping retailers to overcome inadequacies in existing warehouse technology. Rob Hughes is Head of Brand and Thought Leadership at Grey Orange. His company believes that it is impossible for retailers to meet modern fulfilment demands with technology built for a previous era. But according to a report published by Retail Week and Grey Orange, 56% of retail leaders surveyed said that a lack of budget was a key barrier to investing in warehouse automation. He joined us to explain what this means for future transformation and why a post-pandemic skills gap is another challenge that mustn't be overlooked. Hello Rob. Nice to see you again from last year. Yeah, so our second visit uh, together at Retail Week Live. Can you just give us a quick overview of your role at Grey Orange?
4: My job is to really try and understand how we build technology for the future and how we fit into some of those bigger macro problems for to help some of our customers.
0: So you're looking at the trends and seeing what insights you can gather from those trends that then feed into your solutions?
4: Yes, absolutely. And I think a lot of those trends are, are changing dramatically. You know, so. I'd like to say there's trends emerging, but it's like a million trends every five minutes at the moment. There's just so much going on. There's so much new creativity and innovation happening. So
0: So I spoke with your CEO, Samay, at NRF 2023 New York in January earlier this year. One of the things that really interested me was a simple comment he made about your software being hardware agnostic i found that fascinating could you just tell us a little bit more about what that means so
4: the idea of an agnostic system or an agnostic software it allows any robot from any provider to plug into our software the reason that's significant is because we've we spend a lot of time on the software side of things and i hate to say this any robot is just a machine without the software that runs it so it's the technology that runs these machines that make them smart you know here we can Uh, We start to deal with data inputs from logistics. You know, is a truck stopped somewhere? Does that affect the grocery delivery? How do we repack? How do we realign for these types of things? That's really where the value is, is, is in that flexibility and how you move and how you arrange your fulfillment centers and warehouses where you put the robots or the machines to do the work is going to become less and less important. Just it always has done. Hardware has become commoditized over time and it's the software that really drives things forward. So
0: and, and I guess it's not just where do you put the machines, but which machines do you actually use? Because when you're looking at a category like grocery, you know you have everything from sort of hard and pointy shapes to s- yeah. soft and curvy shapes and sometimes which are quite fragile and you might need very different kits to actually provide that fulfillment
4: absolutely and, and and the thing is the kit that we we know about today i know amazon has just come out with swallow a few months ago and that can you know it has a very sensitive touch you know in two or three years time we are going to have robots that can pick petals or flowers individually so the idea of buying a machine now that will meet your needs in the coming months, years is a little bit naive. You almost need a system that you can plug in best and breed technology when you need it. And I think that's why RAS has become so, so interesting as robots as a service, just like software as a service. It's almost a leasing system, but the, the, the cost of going out and buying a robot has substantially decreased. It also means that you don't own it so when the next best robot comes out you can have the best hardware working at optimum pace and optimum efficiencies across your warehouse with the same piece of software so you can use best and breed hardware with the same software that's constantly being upgraded it just makes sense to have an agnostic platform otherwise you end up with a lot of siloed applications that you have to deal with you have to update you have to make sure that they talk to one another and you don't get the same efficiencies of scale if you don't look at a warehouse or the distribution network from an end to end point of view.
0: And with that, presumably some of your investment decisions around hardware could be redundant quite quickly.
4: Absolutely. I mean, anything that we buy today is going to be redundant in the next few years.
0: Look, there's a lot of you know, retail professionals who are over 50s that left the industry, you know, post pandemic. So is the industry suffering from a skills gap or an experience gap at the older age of the spectrum?
4: Yeah, absolutely. And I've we been talking about this constantly uh, with a number of people in the same position as me in thought leadership. Um, trying to figure out, do we have a skills gap or do we just have an experience gap? And I think we've got all the digital skills that we could ever wish for. What we're missing is the experience bit.
0: Final question. What gives you reason to be optimistic about the future of retail, physical retail?
4: Oh, I think it, we're just getting started with what the potential is. First of all, look at the lack of technology in front office of retail. And then you look at the potential of what we could do. You know, we talk about technology and integration, convergence a lot. You know, convergence has to happen for this to take off. And, you know, mobile phones wouldn't have taken off without 3G or 2G or whatever. But in retail, it's more about there's very little integration with the technologies that are available. And and, and it's also picking the technologies that you think are gonna fly. I think that's the challenge for a lot of retailers is what's gonna work, what's not. My advice would be start with the stuff you have to fix now. You know, the stuff that, the promises that you've made to your customers, how do you fulfill those? How do you become more efficient as a business? Those are the two big things for all businesses that we need to, you know, we need to focus on.
0: Uh, And what a brilliant place to end that with. So thank you so much, Rob. It's been a pleasure to talk to you again. Almost every major retailer is now using technology to create a more informed and engaged workforce. But within the vast tech landscape, it can be difficult to decipher the right solution. Speaking alongside retail leaders from New Look and BP to explore this topic on stage was Mark Thompson, Director of Retail and Hospitality Solutions, EMEA, at Zebra Technologies. We caught up with him immediately after to discuss the importance of team-friendly tech, which technologies can make a genuine difference, and why.
5: If you think about 10 years or so ago in a retail store, the only real bits of technology in there was the checkout. And that was, uh, to a great extent, pretty old-fashioned. Now you have self-checkouts, you have scan-as-you-go, you you have pervasive Wi-Fi coverage. Uh, And it's very important that, uh, certainly with today's modern staff, that they have the right tools and they feel as though they have the right tools to do their job properly. And obviously in a day-to-day life, we're on our mobile devices all the time. We have a seamless way of moving between all the different applications on our mobile devices. Why can't we open that up for uh, the same logic for our staff in stores to empower them to be more agile, more flexible, more motivated, any tasks that they need to do, can be shown through the mobile device. Any information that they need to get from head office comes through the mobile device. And any communication or collaboration, again, goes through the mobile device, just as it does in our normal day-to-day life.
0: Currently, what's the tech that's really making a difference and why?
5: It's, it's an interesting one. I, I would still say that mobility by itself is probably the biggest single change driver, but it's, it's how it's used that's very different. So, historically, retailers have seen mobile uh, technology, mobile computers, which are essentially slightly ruggedized uh, smartphones. They've seen them as a cost of the business, and they've thought, what is the minimum number we can get away with in order to do the tasks that we're doing in store? I think the big shift is thinking of that technology as an investment, much in the way as we think of training, onboarding, and motivation, and even staff uniforms. So technology should almost be a seamless thing that happens that every single member of staff is empowered with. And if we do that, we can think about the productivity of staff and the communications of staff in a completely different way and drive much higher levels of productivity. So, so I think to answer the question, mobility is probably the single biggest technology. And we know that from a smartphone perspective, it changes every single year. So these things are changing all the time and we, we have to adapt to that change.
0: Give us some examples
5: of what that means. The biggest example is if a member of staff is standing in front of a customer or a customer comes up to a member of staff and asks them some, for some more information about a product. It might be, where do I find that product in store? It might be, where does this product come from? It might be, do you have more of this product available? Now, in many cases historically and, and still now, those members of staff have had to, had to take that customer to a Probably a point-of-sale desk or a computer at the side of the store etc to try and answer those questions. Putting that information in the hands of the the member of staff allows them to have that interaction directly with the consumer directly with the shopper make the shopper happier because they're getting the answer immediately they feel as though the staff member has access to the right information and so the experience is better and also the distraction time for the staff is far less which allows them to get back to to doing productive operational tasks as well.
0: One of the things that's often said about new tech projects is that adoption is often the biggest hurdle to making a success. What are some of your tips around how do you get adoption really right when you're introducing new tech projects?
5: Yeah, I think adoption is absolutely key in sort of change management. How do you push technology down to stores? And the answer is you don't you involve the stores the store managers the store staff in the projects as the projects are being designed based around what are we actually doing this for what's the outcome that we all want to achieve is it realistic how does that apply within the store itself and if you almost create a pool rather than a push mentality around tech projects, then they will be much more successful because the rest of the staff in the uh, in the retail business can see that it's been designed for them and by them, and therefore they will adopt it far quicker, and it will be designed in a way that it's intuitive for them. So I think all of those things together mean that's how tech projects become successful, rather than a very clever IT department developing a technology and pushing it down to a store, and then the store staff trying to find ways to avoid it.
0: Final question, what's on the horizon? What can we look forward to in, say, five years' time that will be really revolutionising the way that tech is being used by team members in store? Look, the biggest
5: buzzword in tech right now is frictionless, and that will apply to all different types of stores. Now, I don't think it's there yet, uh, although there's probably around a 1,000 so-called frictionless stores around the world, and Amazon Go probably being the biggest single example of that. But we also have similar in Zabka in Poland and, and other retailers that are using frictionless technology what it actually means is can I make the customer journey seamless so that actually there's no queuing, I simply walk into the store, I always find the products that I expect to find and I'm able to walk out and simply uh, be invoiced for that on on my phone, almost like the Uber type experience when it comes to uh, taking a cab. Can I do that in a retail store? And is it the right time? I think the technology is kind of there with uh, recognition of products, recognition of movement of people and bodies so the tech can do it. Some of the processes around it are maybe not quite um, uh, seamless enough or frictionless enough right now. So I'd probably describe it as friction low at the moment in terms of implementation. But I think that will come and I think it will happen within uh, fashion as well and we already see both in in typical food stores as well as fashion stores more deployments of of self-checkout so the self-service piece which is a on the road towards frictionless is already increasing so i think that focus on the customer journey making it more seamless taking out the friction points is probably the biggest change and i think in that the technology behind that which as you can notice i'm talking about the technology last it's the actual deliverable uh, that we talk about first but the technology is very much around uh, computer vision, image recognition, understanding that, that flows, etc.
0: Thank you, Mark. I was talking to Mark Thompson from Zebra Technologies. One of the many companies exhibiting at Retail Week Live this year was digital transformation specialist UST. Its client partner and strategic digital transformation lead, Adrian McGrath, joined me to talk frictionless solutions and how they can help retailers deliver new levels of efficiency and innovation while improving the customer experience what do you think is the biggest barrier
6: to achieving a frictionless experience especially within omnichannel retail um i think it's just the people getting used to it and getting it's, it's a totally different way of working if you look at autonomous stores people still feel kind of odd walking into a store and going, am I really? Can I just take and walk out? Is that OK? So it's getting past that, that point of um, it becoming more commonplace. I think the, the second is um, for a lot of the, the retailers that are driving this autonomous, stores, it's the brand recognition. So people aren't going to necessarily walk into the store and go, oh, I'll take these products when they don't know who they are. So I think you need to have that combination of a hybrid store where you're promoting the brand, um, as well as having an autonomous section for fast, um, fast checkout. So I a lot of retailers are still afraid to really try it and give it a go. It, it, these things take a while, it's trial and error. And, get- and in your
0: experience, are there any particular barriers here in terms of different consumer types? You know, People will often say it's the youngsters you know, Gen Z is likely to embrace new technologies, the ones which are going to try first. I have a different view, and as much as I think people who are often much older or sometimes have the curiosity
6: yeah. and are equally as willing to try. I don't think it's necessary to young people either. I think, I think with all of this, sometimes you've got to look at it it's not just technology for technology's sake. And it doesn't necessarily matter what age the person is. If you can provide something that genuinely helps that person have a better shopping experience, then it doesn't matter what the age. Uh, And and the idea of this, of frictionless technology as well, of course, is that you just shouldn't need a manual to learn how to use it, it should be intuitive. And if it's not intuitive, then you've not got it right. The
0: standout session on day two of the event was undoubtedly the inspiring keynote talk given by Ogilvy UK Vice Chairman, Rory Sutherland. Delivered to a packed main stage audience, he spoke with presence and passion, reminding in simple terms about the truths of human behaviour. And why getting the basics right is still essential for success in store today. And why retail management should not get too distracted by only chasing the shiny and new. Uh, Rory, terrific presentation you just made there on the main stage here at Retail Week Live 2023. Could you just give us a quick overview of some of your themes? Yes, um, a very big one is that
7: we're in danger of trying to be scientific as marketers using the wrong kind of science. And my argument is that data science without behavioural science has the potential to be woefully misleading because it merely tells you the what people are doing, not the why. And quite often, the real why, there's usually an official logical why, but the real why, the deep unconscious reason why people are behaving in this way, actually offers much richer opportunities for innovation uh, you know, and creativity.
0: So, why do you think there are some of the reasons then that the, um, that we're overlooking some of this perhaps more instinctive things I, I that consumers what is, is what when I when I give talks to people on this I say what i what I'm giving you here may be good
7: business advice but it probably isn't good career advice, and there is a very strong tendency in making a decision within an institutional setting to practice defensive decision-making, by which I mean, you will always go with the most logical route, not because it's the best decision, but because it's easiest to defend. And as I put it, it's much, much easier to get fired for being irrational than it is for being unimaginative. And therefore, people desperately cling to a semblance of kind of rational deduction in terms of the decisions they make, not because necessarily it's the most valuable thing you can do, but simply because
0: you're minimising the risk of blame. Do you think there has been a certain degree of boardroom distraction in recent years? Because perhaps e-commerce has taken most of the attention and yep. clearly has taken a lot of the investment. And perhaps, you know, the old-fashioned business of retailing shops and stores hasn't necessarily had the attention it's deserved.
7: No, and I also think there will be a, a reckoning or a recorrection in that... What tends to happen when a new technology comes along is we disproportionately focus on the things the new technology does better. We over attend to the new in a kind of neophilia, which means that what we forget to talk about is the things that the old thing did well that the new thing doesn't. One of the best bits of advice I ever had from a futurologist is that uh, there aren't many in many ways. Futurologists tend to be Preoccupied with this you know this weird shop in Denmark which sells furniture made out of cow dung and they they then build that up as if it's a massive trend uh, not failing to notice that three months after they photographed it the store unsurprisingly went bust but one brilliant bit of advice from a futurologist was there aren't trends there are vectors there's usually an equal and opposite trend in the opposite direction. So, you know, if you like, you know, if you look at it, if you look at say viewing figures, okay, yes, you've seen TikTok and you've seen micro video, but you've also seen the box set binge. And I think that point that there's nearly always a counter trend and we should talk about vectors rather than talking about trends, I thought was a very helpful bit of advice. Online and offline retail is like the Galapagos Islands. You know, it's pure kind of Darwinism of variation selection, you know, test and learn, test and learn. And actually what's true now won't be true in three years time. Um, it, you know, it always fascinates me that um, don't even get me started. My daughters when they were asking me to buy them vinyl records. What the hell is that about? Here's your classic case of a, of a trend and counter trend. I think so often the finance director of a business has grown up with an economic training and tends to see revenue abstraction or cannibalization everywhere. My view is the more different ways you allow people to buy, the more you sell.
0: Despite the many priorities fighting for attention on retailers' corporate agendas right now, sustainability should, and rightly, remain one of the biggest. One company that has held a long-term commitment to environmental stewardship is Lush Retail. Ray Stanton-Smithson, the company's Earthcare engagement lead, joined us to talk about the bold transformations that will be needed to win in sustainability, the need to authentically communicate with customers to ensure they are invested in the journey, and why she hopes that one day she will be out of a job. So, Ray, look, can you give me an overview of your key message?
8: Yeah, I think the key message was the big zoom out, very specifically about the disconnection that we have as individuals with in inverted commas, the environment or sustainability, and how really, even in this business environment, lowercase e, you know, like in the, in this uh, situation that we're, in, we're all talking and thinking about business, uh, fundamentally, we're people, we're humans, and we're connected by that. And really, we need to zoom out much more than thinking about very different intricate policies or uh, profit and loss accounts or marketing strategies, and really look at what is the situation that we are in when it comes to climate change and social injustices and all of the things that are going on and what binds us together mostly as as humans and why do we actually believe we need to create better because it's only from that standpoint and when we really start to question our worldview that we can actually think of like now we can put policies into practice we can put things in place we can put strategy in place But if we're we're just not thinking about the bigger picture and we're just focusing on one specific area, then we're just not going to be, it's not going to work, not going to be successful. Because we would say the world is changing whether we like it or not. So we can either get on board and co-evolve or we can keep trying to push a square peg into a round hole and really carry on with capitalism the way that it's been going rather than trying to develop and evolve to the next stage of what the world looks like
0: what's really important to lush now around that how they're driving the whole sustainability agenda
8: yeah we we definitely have been invested in doing things differently since the beginning so when that was fighting animal testing, when that was using 100% recycled plastic feedstock in our packaging. You know, what was radical then is not necessarily radical now. So we have to keep pushing and keep sort of critiquing ourselves and seeing what the next thing is that we need to do. So if we are saying we want to leave the world washer, if we want to leave the world better, what does that look like? And how are we actually going to walk the walk? How can we be the blueprint of what a business for good looks like and does it
0: get harder for brands such as yourselves to kind of almost keep that message alive because more and more retailers are saying they're doing things and Mm. people are purporting to change but how much of that is actually validated and of course from the consumers perspective all of that can lead to a lot of confusion and even fatigue
8: yeah the greenwashing question and how we can be discerning customers I think maybe like the conversation that we had on the stage earlier on and whilst we feel like a lot of legislation doesn't go far enough or hasn't come quick enough, it seems that now with the traceability and transparency that's required through various supply chain legislation, this will hopefully make it clearer to businesses what actually does create real impactful change so that we can't greenwash ourselves into believing that what we're doing is really great but it takes a concerted effort. Now I imagine
0: somebody like you has to be terribly optimistic and forward-looking about how you can really champion and deliver change. For mainstream retailers, large organisations sometimes where the wheels turn very slowly, how can you throw out some support there to those people who are really trying to make a difference?
8: Oh what a good question. One of the things that I have found the most helpful and supportive in my role when you are trying to Play a, a bit of an internal consultancy role or internal lobbyist role with other areas of a business is to really try and build my own capacity and my own resilience and work on regenerative leadership, which is what I, I sort of touched on in the talk. And there are some really fantastic resources. Can I shout a book out? There is a book that's called Regenerative Leadership by Hutchins and Storm. And this was a real eye opener for me because it was talking to me as the reader about how can I see the world in a way that allows me to feel like I have the energy, the creativity, the hope and the passion to keep on engaging people where it takes some time. And sometimes your messages aren't that favorable at first or people don't see the value or the the necessity in them or the, the time scale that is required. And so... Personally, being able to professionally develop in that way has been an incredible source of strength and inspiration. So I would encourage people to look at the regenerative leadership movement and paradigm and connect with others in that space to so, draw some so strength.
0: Keep yeah. believing and develop your personal resilience.
8: 100% personal resilience is, is a huge part of it. Yes.
0: Yeah. And I guess my final question to you would be if you could be here in five years time, What would be some of those big wins or the objectives that you would like to see that we've achieved? You know, those things which have now been solved.
8: Uh, I always say that personally for myself, I'd love to work myself out of a job. So if, if we didn't need an environmental team, and that's something that we are working on within LUSH to sort of embed this work across departments and across platforms which is happening but if I was hearing more and more of that um, in a space like this where it's just part of the business narrative it isn't a separate session about net zero it isn't a separate thing about specific sustainability if it was just engendered embedded into what we're doing as part of the course I would think that that was a huge success
0: and are you hopeful for change
8: you have to be have to be that's what gets me up in the morning
0: thank you so much Ray it's been a pleasure to talk to you just how happy are your people at work? And could they be happier? Across the two-day event, the People and Wellbeing Zone hosted many speakers, all exploring the importance of well-being in the retail workplace. Leading health, well-being and financial support in this area, along with innovation and research, is the Retail Trust. As part of its plans to build a true picture of employee well-being, it has recently launched its happiness assessment aimed at supporting positive changes within the sector. I sat down with Poppy Folks, Director of Wellbeing Innovation at the Retail Trust to learn more about Retail Trust's wider retail wellness platform
9: we want to try and engage more colleagues across the sector with their well-being, more at a preventative stage, more at an educational stage, to stop them actually ever getting to a point of crisis. Um, so to do that, we want to be able to drive really personalised content, really personalised campaigns for our retail clients to be able to say, for example, your line managers who work in stores in the Southeast who are women under the age of 30 and not feeling very supported, not feeling very happy, and therefore we recommend doing a campaign on work-life balance, for example, because that is their area of challenge at the moment. And that way, that's, that cohort of people are getting personalised campaigns, personalised content to them, making them more engaged in their well-being, making them make better life choices so that they don't get to a point of crisis.
0: And how can a brand which is so respected and credible, like the Retail Trust, you know, really kind of reach out to people in a way that perhaps other forms of media or online advice can't?
9: Because we are for retail. We're much more aware of the the kind of niche and different challenges that retailers face. So things such as shift work, the intolerance epidemic. So we are far more aware of kind of those challenges that retail face. So we can create content and support that help with those areas. The other is that as much as we want to use data to underpin and support a lot of this, we also then want to use the human Touch, I guess, to um, help support this better. So, where we know, for example, an organisation should start to train their line managers in supporting women with through menopause in the workplace. We can then go out and do that training face to face um, and we can engage with your line managers on a much more personal basis. So
0: essentially you're trying to tackle the issues from two sides really, the employees to take care of themselves by engaging with the tools that you can offer them. But also you're working with the employers to actually say, look, these are some of the issues that you're going on and these are some of the programmes which are available, which you can offer to your teams to try and make a difference.
9: Absolutely. So everything we do has the colleague at the heart. Ultimately, we want to empower the colleague. We want to make colleagues across the sector feel happy. And that is definitely a two-prong attack. The first is to be able to give the client all the data and the insights that they need to be able to do those personalized, targeted campaigns, approach, resources, training, whatever that might be. But the second is very much giving the colleague the information and the training they need specific to them. So, for example, in August a lot of the time there's a lot of content around, you know, how to deal with the summer holidays with children. Now, if you don't have children, that content's completely irrelevant to you. And if on the next month you get something from your well-being side of things that might be around men's mental health and you're a female, if you've had two things in a row that aren't relevant to you, you're going to start to switch off. So what we want to make sure is that the colleague is always receiving personalised and informative content that they can empower them and engage with their well-being and won't switch off
0: so it's relevant, confidential and private?
9: Yeah, everything is anonymised. So people can log on to our site and they have a, um, a profile, but nothing we ever share back to an organisation um, gives any personal information away. Um, it is all the underlying data rolled up into one to look at those themes and those trends.
0: You're clearly a really passionate advocate for the services you provide. What message would you like to give to anybody that's listening that is at a, a point where they're thinking they want to investigate and maybe start thinking about getting themselves some help?
9: So I think the first is definitely reach out to anyone, whether that be your line manager making them aware. The second is that our helpline isn't always available so to go onto our website and find the information there. And I think that the third is just take those small, small steps. Anything is better than doing nothing and there are tons of resources out there but I think speaking to someone is super important.
0: Another speaker at Retail Week Live discussing the challenges of working in a fast-paced world of retail was HuffPost editor-in-chief Kate Sevier. She's penned an entire book about the work experiences people don't always want to talk about, managers from hell, debating the decision to quit, comparing yourself to others and much more. She took time out to speak to us to explain the importance of seeing the positives when times are tough and how to work in retail without losing your mind. So many companies have really woken up to the fact that having a good state of mind is important, not just for the individuals, but it's also good for business. What's your view about this?
10: Well, I think if you have a bunch of really stressed out, unhappy people, that doesn't really lend itself to productivity. So I think, you know, unfortunately, while people are like, oh, feelings don't belong at work, well, you can't get rid of them. You're just a person. You carry on your feelings and your psychology with you all of the time, right? Um, so I think um, encouraging people and setting up an environment where they're able to look after their own mental health and set healthy boundaries is only going to increase productivity and positive working relationships that is going to you know, help carry across the business's bottom line, really. And I can
0: imagine if you're a trailblazer inside a company, you know, with some of these thoughts, you might be pushing quite hard against a door, which is maybe open, but not very responsive to really embracing some of these things which people really need to think about.
10: Yeah, and that that is a challenge. I think I've been um, fortunate enough to work at places and organizations that have been really open to that. Um, Not always, but I feel mostly. um, But yeah, I think if you're in a situation where you're not being listened to and your own boundaries and your own needs are kind of being abused, you know, unless you have the energy and the, the kind of mental wherewithal to kind of keep, as you said, pushing against that door, I think sometimes those efforts are spent better other places.
0: One of the phrases which has become popular in recent times is for managers to say to their teams, to bring your whole self to work. Why potentially is that dangerous?
10: Uh, Yeah, no, I I am not a fan of bringing your whole self to work, um, quite frankly, because uh, people's whole selves that is dark and it's complicated. And organizations are not set up or equipped to deal with that. They're very much kind of set up to deal with like mental health light, a touch of anxiety or people getting signed off for like a week and that's it. And then they're magically fine. They are not especially like the more toxic and unsupportive working environments. That's not a safe place to kind of expose your most vulnerable, true self. So I think establishing with yourself, you know, OK, how can I be authentic? How can I um, be honest, but not overshare or really expose myself in a place that doesn't know how to hold space for me Um, and that'll look different from person to person and it'll also kind of change and ebb and flow um, in your own career and even in within you know the same role in an organization depending on who your manager is for example but yeah it's I would say for the most part it's not it's not totally safe to I think bring your whole self to work.
0: And do we as people just have to accept that the workplace and even our social spaces are just getting more and more pressured with more places where anxieties and different kinds of malcontents can come along and we just need to kind of almost equip ourselves to thinking what's the best place to deal with it? Be aware of it but seek help.
10: Absolutely. I think really encouraging people to understand their own mental health and and, I, and what I call like, what are you bringing to the party? If everyone kind of looked after themselves and, and being mindful of their kind of interactions at work and, and what they kind of bring to their relationships at work with their co-workers, I think we'd all kind of organizationally be better off because everyone is just being more aware and accepting of it. I think, you know, just accepting everyone else as complicated humans who are all doing the best they can is usually a good place to start.
0: And perhaps one of the things we can all do is just be a little bit kinder to ourselves as well as to each other.
10: Absolutely, I think if you're not uh, you know, being kind and empathetic towards yourself, it's pretty impossible to do that for others.
0: Kate, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you. We couldn't end this episode without giving the final word to Retail Week Editor-in-Chief Charlotte Hardy to get her thoughts on the event, the key themes that will require action in the months to come and the outlook for retail for the remainder of 2023. So how has the event been for you?
11: It has been brilliant actually. I feel like this is the first proper post-pandemic event if you like. We've had a thousand people through the door, we've had 150 speakers, we've had 150. 50 to 200 CEOs um, and around 200 retail brands so it's been great engagement and great support throughout the retail sector and for that we are very grateful.
0: (laughs) And what has been the appetite for brands to get involved? Because Obviously people's time is quite precious you know there's lots of competing demands for people to be in the office and doing other things in the field you know coming to an event like this and spending a day out of the office must weigh heavy on people's agendas.
11: It is a luxury, definitely. I think, though, the retail sector, possibly more than many other sectors, hinges on the need to collaborate, on the need to learn from each other, on the need to, in some senses, let's be honest, sense check trading at a time of huge change and huge challenges in the sector, let's not forget, of is my strategy working? What should I be looking out for? What are your consumers doing? How are you dealing with XYZ challenges in your business? And so there's a need to come together and there's a need to listen to what some of the best retailers in UK retail are doing and how they're thinking. And, you know, we bring them to the stage, but also people meet and greet throughout the event in our networking areas and in the boardroom zone. And, you know, and I think, you know, it's a sector that that likes to get together. So it's been very successful.
0: Lots of stages, lots of speakers, lots of people talking about interesting stuff. What have been some of your key takeouts?
11: Actually, it's a surprising amount of stoicism, I think, in the retail sector. You know, this is a really resilient sector. We've just had Helen Connolly from New Look uh, on stage just now talking about, you know, that no one's shying away from all the challenges. The cost pressures are really, really tough. Consumers are more discerning. But there is that sense of, look, we came through COVID, we can get through anything. And they know that, you know, with the right leadership with the right operational efficiency with the right strategy that they will weather the storm. And that was sort of general pervading sense of optimism, I think we also had um you know the morning of young minds as we've called it which has been a morning of reverse mentoring so every uh, speaker on the stage has either been gen Z or gen alpha you know ranging from a 16 can i just
0: make a call here i think we need to focus more on the boomers <laughs>
11: <laughs> well actually the boomers have not are not have not been uh, ignored either you know and that's been the whole point it's been looking at how you bridge the generational gaps in retail and we heard from grace beverly who's the ceo of tyler and shreddy she's um hugely talented and inspiring she's only 26 and she was talking about actually she doesn't want to just have Gen Z's in her business at all because if you do that you're going to miss a trick in understanding other parts of your business you you know you need the, the, the diversity of age in your business whatever whoever your target consumer is and, and, and she was she was very quick to point that out and the number of CEOs that have stayed around throughout the whole two days particularly this morning for the morning of reverse mentoring was, was an indication of how that important that is
0: for many years, Marks & Spencer was seen as the sick man of retail within Britain. Uh, lots of people having plenty of commentary about you know, what it should or shouldn't be doing, and people trying to right its wrongs. Maybe we're seeing a resurgence within Marks & Spencer, but you know, John Lewis shares a similar space. Do you think we're going to see more commentary in future about some of the problems there?
11: I think that's inevitable. I mean, John Lewis has not been out of the headlines recently, particularly with the news about the potential changes to their ownership structure. Look. Whatever people's emotional attachment to their ownership structure may be, and there are many people that are very vocal about that, Mary Porters being one, in terms of, you know, this is a terrible decision for the partnership. Whatever your views on that ownership structure, really it's about how that retailer returns to the basics of retailing and, and regains the trust with their consumer. That's the fundamental challenge that John Lewis has at the moment. Um, and I think people have been quite quick to sort of jump on the the John Lewis bandwagon and have been the latest casualty of the UK high street. Sometimes brands do lose their way, right? Sometimes they do. It doesn't mean they should be written off. Let's just see where we are in another 12 months' time. We've got the new CEO coming in. Uh, from Hovis, admittedly not a retailer, but let's not forget Dave Lewis wasn't a retailer when he joined Tesco and he came from Unilever and he did a phenomenal job at turning that around. So we also need to be mindful of not writing people off too quickly because they're not retailers too. And sometimes fresh thinking can be just as good, providing you've got brilliant retail teams with trading skills around you.
0: Charlotte Honey, thank you so much. Well, that's all we have time for on this episode here in London at what has been a hugely enjoyable Retail Week Live 2023. Stay tuned for our next event review from World Retail Congress in Barcelona later this month, right here only on the Retail Exchange podcast. And if you're interested in getting involved in Retail Week Live 2024, be sure to visit www.live.retail-week.com. But for now, from me, Carl McKeever, and the rest of the Retail Exchange podcast team, thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Retail Exchange podcast. Thanks for listening.